0: Now, I want to warn you, I fully expect some sprained fingers this morning. We're going to be all over the scriptures. So you're going to need to have a Bible in your lap. If you don't, I remind you there are several on the bookshelf in the back. Please take one. And I remind you again, take one and and give it away. You know, we we don't intend to keep those here. Those are to take and give and spread. Let the word be spread out. Well, first Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. We're going to lay the groundwork and we'll come back to this in a little bit. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Last week, we talked about prophecy update part one, the run up to the rapture. Today is the rapture. Okay, all right. Today, we focus on, look at, talk about, consider the rapture. And if the rapture happened before my head hit the pillow tonight, praise the Lord. Amen. Luke 12, 35, Jesus said, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Bible prophecy is a lamp shining in a dark place, 2 Peter 1:19. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. And remember what we talked about last week in the run-up and we had to do last week before we did this week because last week was talking about where we are, where we're headed. This week, we're talking about what's coming. Last week was preparation in terms of our thinking and getting ready to talk about what we're going to talk about this morning, but also to be ready for what we're gonna talk about this morning. And I want to remind you again that the times don't shed light on the Bible. The Bible sheds light on the times. We have to go to the scripture first to explain to us what's happening, not what's happening, and then try to proof text it by the word. Last week, the run-up to the rapture, and I believe we truly are, and we talked about several reasons for that, and that makes this, this lamp, this word, immediately significant more significant I believe for us than ever before because without this word in this day we would have darkness without the lamp we'd have confusion without the lantern disinformation fear-mongering or as Jesus put it false prophecy and there's plenty to go around Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, Jesus said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they look like you, flock. They look like the church. They look like his people, like they belong in the pasture, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And that sobers me. Not because I fear so much being duped. I just don't wanna be one who dupes others. You've heard of super spreader events? Look out for super dupers. Those who would bring the word to twist it and, and give false information, those who do so unwittingly and it's easy to do, get all caught up in the emotion and the excitement and not bring the word as written. So Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Have you noticed? Prophecy updates are all the rage right now. Everybody's very excited to hear what the word has to say, and that's a good thing, and I'm glad of it. We have more hits on our YouTube channel alone from last Sunday's teaching than we have in I don't, ever, perhaps. And yet Wednesday night when we were in Leviticus 21, we had about the average. <laughs> because people go online, they look, they go, prophecy update, yes, Leviticus, eh, prophecy update even though Leviticus contains more words of God spoken than any book in the Bible. So I encourage you, go back and listen to Wednesday night if you happen to miss that one. But we're all looking for light in these dark times. We all want to be updated prophetically. What does the word of God have to say? How can that help us navigate through the darkness? Listen, as we do these last week, this week, probably next week, maybe the week after, maybe we'll just keep doing prophecy updates till Jesus comes back. I don't know but we've got to be level-headed and grounded even as we talk about being caught up in the air. We need to be sober-minded. We need to think clearly even as we talk about being caught up. That's our topic for today in case you missed it, the rapture of the church. Well, that word "rapture" is not in the Bible. Don't worry about that, I'll explain. It actually is, if you read it in Latin, but we'll get there. I got an email this last week, and it was one of those sobering moments for me. It was from a uh, a friend who had just gotten his first vaccination of the two. He works in... uh, Uh, safety industry, and so it was something they really wanted everybody working there to get. He got the first one, didn't even think about it. Then he saw a prophecy update, and it disturbed him greatly. He listened to a teacher talking about the vaccinations who implied a dangerous link between the current vaccination and the mark of the beast. Now, listen to me on this. I'm not going to get into the vaccination debate because people are very divided, There are those who are signing up as fast as possible, and there are those who are saying, There's no way I would take that. Listen, I am a pastor, Jim, not a doctor. (laughs) But could the tech that is in the COVID vaccines be used by Antichrist as his mark? Of course it could. So could the chips in your credit cards and in our cell phones. And if you're concerned about contact tracing and that kind of thing, you could start by dumping Twitter, which I would advise anyway. Get rid of Facebook if you're worried about these things. But we need to, again, let the Bible interpret the times. So I am gonna answer the question, could the vaccination perhaps possibly be the mark of the beast? As we get rolling this morning, turn over to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, I'm gonna start reading because if you can't find Revelation by now. (laughs) Revelation chapter 13, verse 16 Speaking of the Antichrist, and if any of this is new to you, just just stay with us, follow along. We'll explain as much as we can as we go. And also, I advise you, if any of this is new, what I talk about this morning, you need to go back and listen through our Revelation teaching series. Just do the whole thing, and you will understand. Revelation 13, 16, he, Antichrist, causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the freemen and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, did you know, right now, the vaccination is widespread in Israel. They're moving faster than any country in the world in terms of getting their population vaccinated and quickly. They've been hit hard by coronavirus. But Israel has something going on that might interest you. They have what's called a green card. You get the green card when you get the vaccination. The green card allows you to travel inside the country without quarantining, outside the country, and come back in without quarantining. He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell and there's, there are those implying that you should not be able to move about unless you have proof of a vaccine. And so that's unnerving some people, but keep going. Chapter 14 of Revelation, verse nine. Another angel, a third one, follow them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is frightening stuff. You do not want to take the mark. Skip over to chapter 20 of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 4. Anyone's finger sprained yet? Oh, we're just getting started. Revelation 20, verse four, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, you do not want to take the mark of the beast. You shouldn't be here to take it. This is what people are missing right now who say, well, perhaps the vaccination is the mark. You shouldn't be here when the mark is offered. What is the mark? It is the name of Antichrist, the beast, or the number of his name, which John spells out, 666. 666. How is the mark given? Right hand or forehead? Mark, the mark, it, it literally means engraving. Now, the teaching that my friend listened to that so unnerved him, what the teacher did, and this, by the way, is a popular teacher among even some of us here at the bridge. But what he did was he went to a definition, and he went out to the fringe of the definition and found a single possible word that this could be defined, not normally defined that way but found this word, pulled it in and compared it to getting a shot and said oh here we go and he never, and this is what bothered me about it, it wasn't the information that was a problem, it's that he never explained whether or not he thought or the Bible said that this current vaccination could be the mark of the beast if the mark was a shot, listen to me Don't you think the Lord would make that a little more clear? Do you think he would leave it out on the fringe of a definition so only a Bible scholar could work his way out there to find it, but most people could be tricked into getting it? Please understand, Revelation is clear, that the mark will signify loyalty to the Antichrist and rejection of Jesus Christ. People will know what they're doing. They may feel pressured, but they're gonna know what it is. No one's gonna be tricked. The spirit of the Lord is the one who inspired John to write about the mark. The spirit of the Lord is clear with us. Of course you don't wanna take the mark. But as I said, you shouldn't even be here for it. Why? When is the mark going to be forced on people? Revelation 13, and I don't have time to go into it right now, but Revelation 13, you can read it, ties the mark to the abomination of desolation, which is three and a half years into the tribulation, and the world is not there yet. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying we're not in the tribulation, and because we're not in the tribulation, the mark of the beast is not current. It won't be until that point in time. Turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter two. Now, there are all kinds of other arguments going on about the vaccination, whether or not you should take it. We had have that discussion. We're not going to this morning. But we can have that discussion another time. I'm focused right now on where are we? Remember last week, run up to the rapture. Listen to this. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1 Now we request you brethren with regard with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him two things there two things he just mentioned the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him and it's not the same moment it's not the same event he says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. At the time of the writing of this letter, believers in Thessaloniki were afraid they'd missed the rapture. They were being told by some that they had been thrust into the tribulation, that the hard times that they were having, and they were having hard times, was the tribulation. And this disturbance among those of the church of Thessaloniki, Paul hears about that. Paul writes a second letter to them to simply dispel the myth. To say, hey, that's not what's going on here at all. You haven't missed anything. He's very clear about this. By the way, how did this little church in Thessaloniki, how did they even know about things like the mark? and the tribulation, and the rapture, how did they even know to be disturbed? Because in the three to four weeks, five weeks on the outside, that Paul had been in that town, planting that church, end times prophecy was Bible 101 to Paul. He had already taught them. It would be like you give your life to the Lord, and the very first Bible study you go into is the book of Revelation. By the way, that's not a bad idea. And that's what Paul did. He assumed that they would know these things. If you read 1 Thessalonians, we already read a section of that, you know he's already talked to them about this. He's writing to to reaffirm these things. The second letter he's confirming again, and so in verse three of 2 Thessalonians chapter two, he says let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember, Paul says, that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? (laughs) Paul's teaching them brand new baby planted church about the abomination of desolation and the tribulation and things which a lot of mature believers don't even know a whole lot about. But Paul laid it out early on right up front. This is what you need to be aware of, what is coming in the last days. But get this, Paul says very clearly, the day of the Lord will not come until two things happen. Two things that are markers, if you will, prior to the day of the Lord. That is the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Okay, first of all, he says the day of the Lord will not come. What's the day of the Lord? It's a day that is rooted in Hebrew context, in Hebrew meaning. The day of the Lord, just as the Jewish calendar day goes from evening to evening, so does the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord begins in the dark. Joel, the prophet, describes it like this. Joel chapter 2, verse one, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness sounds like evening. And that's where the day of the Lord begins. The day of the Lord, my friends, begins with the tribulation seven-year period of time where the entire earth is judged and goes through it. Day of the Lord, day of darkness. But, but, but what's interesting is the prophet Joel in the third chapter of Joel, and just jot these things down, he writes this. He says, in that day, the day of the Lord, The mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. He describes a beautiful time. Well, like the Jewish calendar day that starts at night, suddenly now we're in the brightness of a beautiful day and it's still the day of the Lord. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. What? Put it together. Peter is not randomly using the phrase, the day of the Lord. He knows exactly what he's talking about. Joel knew exactly what he was talking about. The day begins in the evening with tribulation, goes into the bright day of the millennial kingdom. And then it ends with the earth being destroyed. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And that I believe is what Peter is talking about of the destruction of earth. God's gonna get rid of old earth. He's gonna get rid of the old heavens. When? At the great white Throne judgment, which is talked about in Revelation 20. Now, I don't want to lose you here. I know I'm moving fast on some things, but this is one long day, a day that begins with the wrath of God, the tribulation. It continues through the brightness of the millennial kingdom. It ends on the eve of the great throne judgment. This day is 1,007 years long, the day of the Lord. But again, listen, Paul says, the day of the Lord cannot begin, will not begin until the apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist. So question number one, has Antichrist been revealed? Anyone know who he is? Is he just Biden his time? No, 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 hey, wait, wait. Hey, listen, Antichrist is not from Scranton, so it can't be Joe Biden, all right? But has the apostasy happened? Maybe the more important question. Has the apostasy happened? Now, some would say, well, I don't know. the church is not looking very strong these days. A lot of people falling away, a lot of apostasies going on. Notice I didn't ask you, has the apostasy begun? Because the apostasy, my friends, is not a process, it's an event. It's an event. How do you know? because it's called the apostasy. It's ho apostasia, ho in the Greek is the definite article the, speaking of this happening, this event. And then apo, which means from, and stasia in the Greek, which means to stand. And it's put together, apostasia means to stand from. It means standing apart from or to stand away from. In the noun form, and just gotta get this, suddenly we're into nouns and verbs and stuff, but in the noun form, this is used just two times in the New Testament, apostasia. It's used here where it says, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first, unless the apostasy happens. The day of the Lord cannot, will not begin. That has to happen before the day of the Lord. So it's used there. It's also used when Paul was wrongly accused of of causing Jews to forsake their Jewish faith in Acts 21, verse 21. Just, Just note that. But the word there, if you read it in Acts 21, 21, he says Paul was causing, they said Paul was causing the Jews to fall away from their faith, but the word is not fall away. The word is apostasia. The word means leave. Depart from, to stand apart from. The verb form of this word is aphistemi. Apostasia and aphistemi are the same word. It's just one's the noun and one's the verb. The verb form is used 15 times in the New Testament. Three times, three of the 15, it's used this way. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, which we read last week. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Or you could translate that, some will leave the faith. Some will depart from the faith. And I said, it's been used that way three times, but always connected to the faith. So there's always context given for the leaving, that there are those who will depart the faith. They'll fall away from, they'll stand apart from the faith. The other 12 times that this verb form is used are like this, Acts chapter 12, verse 10, when Peter escapes from prison by the angel's help And it says, and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. Leaving, departing, standing apart from where you were before. Both the noun and the verb mean to leave. And if you don't have context, it simply just means leave. Listen to it in this verse. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the departure comes first. The departure. It doesn't say the departure from the faith. See, that would be a process. That would happen over time. A departure, as in the church slowly apostasizing, as we might use that word. And so we hear the word apostasy from apostasia, and we immediately think heresy. But the word in the Greek simply means to leave. It depends on what you are leaving. Are you leaving your faith, or are you leaving your house to go to McDonald's? Is it a bad thing to leave your house and go to McDonald's? Now, some would say yes, but I don't think so. It's just the departure. I'm departing. I'll be back. (laughs) Interesting that the first seven English Bible translations, from the Wycliffe in 1384 all the way to the Geneva Bible, which was the Bible the pilgrims used in 1608, all seven read in this verse, it will not happen unless the departure comes first. And it doesn't say, as I said already, the departure from the faith. It just says, the departure. Kenneth Wiest in his word studies says, quote, first and foremost, this word means a geographical departure. The day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first. So is the departure spiritual, as in from the faith, or is it geographical, as in from a location Or could it perhaps be both? The Bible doesn't make it any clearer than this. It's a departure. And I believe what we're talking about here is a great geographical incident, the rapture of the church. That the departure must happen before the Antichrist is revealed, before the day of the Lord begins. That's important because a whole lot of Christians are spending a whole lot of time looking for Antichrist when we're supposed to be looking for Jesus Christ when our focus is on the coming of the Lord, not the coming of the man of lawlessness. Our our focus is on Jesus and the hope that is before us. But I ask you this morning, why, why do so many Christians reject teaching on the rapture? Well, because the word rapture is not in the Bible. You're right, it's not. Again, unless you're reading it in Latin, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter four. The Latin word is raptus, which in Latin is in this passage. The Greek word, oh, you Bible students, you know it. What's the Greek word, anyone? Harpazo. Harpazo, great word. And it's right here in the text as well. But let's, let's look at the text. You've, you've heard of infodumps, Right? Okay, this morning is a prophecy dump of biblical data. And my intention today is to dump biblical data of the rapture of the church on you and let you sift through it as you will. So that's why there are so (laughs) many support verses up here. But check this out. Again, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, and we're gonna walk through this. Understanding that the lantern sheds light on the subject of the rapture, bright light. We're not gonna draw from one verse, we will draw from a multiplicity of passages to see what does the Bible really say? Doesn't matter what your tradition is. See, that's the problem. Christians will reject the teaching of the rapture because it's not their tradition. You know what? Your tradition will not get you into heaven. Your tradition is not what matters. What does this word say? That's what matters. What is God's truth? Hang your tradition. What is the truth of the Word of God? Some reject teaching on the rapture simply because they've never been taught. I've never heard this before. And shame on so many pastors who have never taken the time to talk about this. The departure. The departure, my friends. That's that's number one in, in a list of several things related to the rapture. It is the departure of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and now we're into it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, skip back up to verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, one of four or five times Paul ever even says that. This is something not to miss about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, quick side note, asleep means what the body looks like when it's dead. Looks like asleep. It is not soul sleep. And there are those who teach soul sleep that you die and your soul just sleeps until judgment day or whatever happens after that, you know? No. No, the Bible's very clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses seven through eight, which says, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. That's not soul sleep. It's not boring in the presence of the Lord. No one's sleeping in the presence of the Lord. It is simply talking about death. Don't be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who have died, so you won't grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe, get this, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? That's, that's A number one, resurrection. If you believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That is, he's gonna bring the spirits of everyone who's died. If you die today, body goes in the ground, your spirit immediately goes home to be with the Lord. And at this, this happening, this <laughs> departure, the Lord brings with him the spirits of all those who've already died as he's coming down to meet with us. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. He descends with a shout. Who descends with him? All of those spirits of all the believing dead. Who are right now, currently with the Lord, come with him. And he descends with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wait a minute, I thought they were coming back with him. Why are they rising? Because the word dead there is necros, and it means corpse. You see what's happening? That the the corpse in the ground, what about the cremated? God can put molecules together, trust me. They rise. The corpses rise instantaneously as the Lord brings with him the spirits and they are immediately glorified. Got that? More on that in a second. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptus, harpazoed, raptured, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be With the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. It is a crystal clear teaching of exactly what's going to happen at the time of our departure. We will depart this earth. We will leave, we will stand apart from where we are right now, and we will stand before Jesus. Where? In the air, in the clouds, we'll meet the Lord. So he comes that far bringing with him the spirits of those who have died, the dead in Christ, the corpses in Christ, the necros, they rise, he glorifies them, we rise, we're all glorified. It's a glorious moment. It is the rapture of the church, and Paul says so clearly, therefore, comfort one another with these words. It is the departure, number two. It is the comfort of the church. Why would we deny ourselves this comforting truth? That that day is fast approaching, as I said, perhaps today, when we will immediately be with the Lord, we will immediately be changed. No other teaching in the Bible brings such immediate comfort as the pre-tribulation departure of his people. Oh, you're a pre-tribber. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I just take his word literally. There are all kinds of views out there about when this is supposed to happen. Views about when the rapture is supposed to take place. Views about whether or not the rapture would even take place. The biblical view, the literal view, is very simple. There are those who hold to what's called the preterist view, perhaps you've heard that. The preterist view, which states that all the stuff talked about, the tribulation talked about in Revelation six through 18, that all of that happened in AD 70. I advise you go read that and then compare it to history. It did not happen in AD 70, but, but let's say that it had. Those with the preterist view say that already happened and now we are in the kingdom. This is the kingdom? I'm looking for a better country, my friends. I am looking for a better, this is not the kingdom. Besides the fact the Bible's clear that during the kingdom age, Satan is bound. Is Satan bound right now? See, Peter even denies that. 1 Peter chapter five, he says he's prowling the earth like a lion, like a roaring lion. That's not bound. We're not in the kingdom. Preterism is dead. What about the mid-tribulation view? You know, we're going in. <laughs> we're gonna We're gonna fight. Oh, foolish, hey, why would you want to? But this idea of the mid-tribulation rapture that that you're gonna go through half of the tribulation, you're gonna pay, you know, we're going in. The bride's gonna get beat up for a bit first and then go to the wedding all bruised, tattered. Or or worse, the post-tribulation rapture says we're going through the whole thing. Let's just have the bride get the snot beat out of her. There are those who, who are into the pre-wrath. They call it the pre-wrath rapture that they believe that will be raptured pre-wrath, but that's not right at the beginning of the so-called tribulation. People will kind of create hoops and, and jump through them and everything and try and make connection to the midpoint of the tribulation. Somewhere in there, we won't really go through wrath, we'll be caught up right before real wrath happens. The problem is the entire first half of the tribulation is called the wrath of the Lamb. So all these other views, they're, they're hoops and circles and they try to fit tradition in and try and make you know, church background fit and the Bible doesn't support any of them. You'll never hear the phrase a pre-tribulation rapture in the Bible because it's so plain, it's so clear, it doesn't even need to be spelled out as we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Or how about 1 Corinthians 15, another familiar passage. Beginning in verse 50, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That is, you can't go to heaven as you are. Your flesh can't get there. Anybody tried? I have. You know, when I was a kid, we tried to jump as high as we could off the diving board thinking maybe if some wind caught us it would just continue on up and it never worked. We always came down with a crash. You can't get there. The perishable has to inherit has to put on the imperishable and so Paul says behold here's how it happens. I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We will not all die. Some will die. In faith in Jesus, some will be alive at the time. We will not all die or sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And that's how you get there. And I love that. That is so encouraging, that is so comforting comfort of the church, about our departure. And when does it happen? Number three, if you're taking notes, at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, again, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I always wonder what that shout was. I believe we know, because I think we heard it in Revelation chapter 4, verse one, which I'll read that to you in just a moment. By the way, I know it freaks people out when you say, we'll get to that or I'll talk about that in just a moment, especially if you've heard it three or four times because you're assuming there are a lot of moments yet to come, right? There are, there are. (laughs) The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. What's the shout? Revelation chapter four, verses one and two where John hears Jesus say, come up here and off he goes. I think that's the shout. Now I can't prove it, but I, I think that's the shout. And with the voice of the archangel, the only archangel mentioned in the entire Bible is Michael. There are others, but Michael is named. So I don't know if Michael's the one who's gonna be talking. We know there's a voice of the archangel. What does this mean? Well, Jesus shouts, the archangel calls out. We don't know what he's saying. We don't know if he's calling out commands, if he's getting all the angels ready in heaven. I don't know what's going on, but he's speaking. And then, and with The trumpet of God, God's voice trumpets. And he trumpets for the last time over this earth. When was the first time? Exodus chapter 19. If you wanna turn there or just listen, it's not too hard to find Genesis, Exodus, so the second book. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, which says it came about on the third day when it was morning. That's so interesting to me. The third day, day of resurrection, You know that when we're raptured, there's another word for it, resurrection. That is our resurrection. And so on the third day, when it was morning, there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And that word for trumpet there in the Hebrew, shofar. Are you with me, shofar? And Moses... (laughs) brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. My friends, this sound begins and it hasn't stopped yet. It's getting louder and louder and louder. This is one long blast. And Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And I love verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord came down, and Moses went up. When? At the first trumpet. At the first trumpet. The first trumpet of God was at Mount Sinai to gather his people Israel together. The last trumpet of God, as Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, will be to gather his people, the church, to Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Church is ecclesia. Ecclesia means the assembly or the called out. Do you realize that the day of the rapture, we will fulfill that name? We will be the called out assembly. Those who, who have been called out to assemble before Jesus. And note this the very last thing that the Lord told Moses to do before the people departed from Mount Sinai, as we have actually recently studied was to make two silver trumpets. Actually, we're gonna study this, Lord willing, in the next book that we're in, in Numbers. Numbers chapter 10, verse two. He says, make yourself two silver trumpets, of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. Why two trumpets, Lord, in case they ding one? Two trumpets. There's a first trumpet of God, and there's a second trumpet of God. And these trumpets were for the purpose, then and now, of gathering his people. The Jews even have a holiday to emphasize it. Leviticus 23, 24. This is coming up very soon in teaching. In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder, by blowing a holy convocation. And the word blowing is teruah, and the holiday is Yom Teruah. You know it as Rosh Hashanah but originally, biblically, spiritually, it's Yom Teruah, it's the Day of Trumpets, which is why there are a lot of people who wonder if perhaps the rapture might happen on the Day of Trumpets, which is in October. Don't relax, don't chill until October because it could happen at any time, but it's an interesting thought. Are there any more obvious Older Testament indications of the rapture? Because we see the Lord comes down on Sinai, Moses goes up, it's on the third day. There's a picture right there of of the rapture of the church, of, of people going up, or at least a person going up to meet the Lord who has come down. Number four, if you're keeping track of this, the departure, right? The departure, the comfort of the church, the last trumpet, number four, ancient promises and portraits, Ancient promises and portraits. Turn to the book of Isaiah, right about midway into your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 26, Isaiah 26. I love this verse. I ran across this several years ago for the first time. When I had been asked, okay, Paul talks about the rapture, we see a couple of places where Paul, Paul was crazy anyway, talked about it in the New Testament. How about Old Testament? Is there anything back there in the Hebrew Scriptures that even implies the rapture of the church? Remember, as Paul did teach, the church was a mystery to the Jewish people. Church was a mystery throughout the ages, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. No one knew. It's like you're standing on one mountain and you're looking at the other mountain and it's the valley in between that there would be an age, the church age, this age of grace. Well, Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20. The Lord says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. Indignation is the Hebrew word for tribulation. The indignation in the Hebrew scriptures is often specifically tied with that time of judgment and wrath that we know of that we call the tribulation. Come, my people, into your rooms, hide for a bit. Now, this could be a prophecy talking to Israel because he says, come, my people, and oftentimes, or most of the time in the Hebrew scriptures, when God says, my people, he's talking about Israel. The thing is, with some context and with some clarity And looking at Revelation 12 and then looking back here at this passage, Revelation 12 clearly teaches that Israel will be airlifted to a safe place in the wilderness where they will be protected and nourished 1,260 days or a time, times, and half a time. Both those equate to three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation here on earth. Listen to the verse again. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. And you can read that and say, okay, come hide in the wilderness. Maybe that's what it's talking about. Israel, protected in the wilderness. Come hide out there until the indignation is finished, until it's all done, possibly, perhaps. It's more likely, however, that he's talking about the church, that he is indeed talking about those who will be caught up Harpazod, raptus, raptured, caught up to meet the Lord in the air and that we will enter our rooms. Why do you say that, Rick? Because we are told to come hide away before the indignation begins. Look at verse 21. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That's the tribulation and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. This is a calling out before it begins. Israel is protected three and a half years in for the last three and a half years. How interesting is that? That Jesus said in John 14, verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he offers these comforting words. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Many rooms, you could say. Come, my people, enter into your rooms. If it were not so, Jesus said, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where I am, he's not coming to where we are, that is on the earth, we're going to where he is in the heaven, the rapture of the church. Now remember, last week I told you that there are some prophecies that are given in pictures. And and you you couple them, you put them together with literal specific worded prophecies and you get the whole thing. But there are some indications, the father-son sacrifice of Abraham, Isaac, which shows the sacrifice of the father and Jesus at the cross. Jesus talked about the sign of Jonah, we mentioned that last week as well. Three days, in the, three days, three nights in the belly of the, of the whale and like three days, three nights in the heart of the earth as Jesus was buried in, in, in that time between crucifixion and resurrection. Those are pictures that we see in the Hebrew scriptures that have prophetic overtones to them. Are there any for the rapture? And you Bible students know there are. Portrait number one, Enoch. You only have to go five chapters into the Bible and you run into this guy Enoch Genesis chapter five, verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Gone. Now, from Genesis 5, 24, all the way to Hebrews chapter 11, you gotta wonder, now, what does that mean, God took him? What does that look like? How did that happen in that moment? And the Hebrew pastor, by the Holy Spirit, tells us. Hebrews eleven five. five, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because god took him up for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to god taken up in the greek is metatithomai and in language metatithomai means to translate we're going to translate hebrew to english we're going to translate greek to english like we do with the bible or aramaic to english but in Enoch's case, he was translated from perishable to imperishable, completely. We're not just talking about his spirit. It wasn't like they went and they found the shell of his body one day. No, he was just gone, man. Body, soul, and spirit, everything that Enoch was got caught up. Enoch got translated, metatithomai. By the way, it's kind of cool. In music, that same word means to transpose. So he went from flesh to glorify it. Instantaneously, Enoch. How come Christians, dead or alive, get to be raptured? Ever been asked that question? Or it's it's amazing to see how much in media and entertainment and even in the news the rapture is really made fun of now. It was a big deal back in the mid-90s, as we talked about with the Left Behind series, and people were starting to look at it, and actually there were some serious discussions. Now it's not serious at all. It is just made fun of. It is crazy Christian fringe. My friends, you are listening this morning to a crazy Christian fringe pastor. I am way out there compared to the mainstream in our media today. Who makes fun of this thing? And 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 part of the reason is like, what do you who do you Christians think you are? Oh, so special. Why do you think you get to be raptured and the rest of us all get to be left behind? What is it that makes you so special? I advise you to go back again and listen to Wednesday night's teaching out of Leviticus 21, which talks about the disabled priest. See, we're a royal priesthood, but every one of us are disabled. And in Leviticus 21, the Lord goes through all this listing of priests with all these different disabilities. One was a cleft lip and cleft palate. I could not be a priest in Israel. I would be considered disabled. But Jesus has enabled me, enabled you to be saved. Jesus enables us. And the only reason why you, should it happen today, why I will be caught up immediately has nothing to do with you and me and our ability, as I said before, to leap off the ground and get caught on the wind. See, the truth is we are all disabled, defective, deformed, disqualified, but God qualifies us through faith in Jesus Christ. I say, Jesus, I trust you, and God says, I've got you. And that's how we get there. Why was Enoch taken up? Because he was pleasing to God. How is Enoch pleasing to God? Hebrews eleven six. six, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you will be caught up by faith in Jesus, not by anything else that you do talking with my daughter this last week, and she said, you know, the only thing about the rapture, Dad, is I sometimes wonder, have I done enough? And I said to her, honey, you can't do enough. You will never do enough. There's always more. With every breath of life, with every day of life, isn't there there more that we can do than we did so far? Have you ever had that thought? There's so much more I can do. Then do it, but don't do it to get caught up. You're gonna be caught up. Defective and deformed as you may be. And some of you are pretty defective. But listen to this, and this is is really intriguing to me. Romans chapter eight, verse eight, says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. By the way, in terms of the rapture, Think about this. If Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, the power to rapture and change you is already in you. Thank you. I mean, who are a, a clapper or something? Because that, that's amazing to me. The Holy Spirit is already in me. How am I going to get caught up? Not by my power, but he's already ready to go. He's already here. His power will raise, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, will raise me off this ground, will raise me up and change me, the Spirit of Christ who is now residing within me. So I'm good to go. I don't even have to have a convertible car. I'm all ready to go. 2 <laughs> Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 tells us the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, that is, holds back evil, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Well, guess what? He is in me. Therefore, when he goes, I go. When I go, he goes. And this world will, for the first time in 2,000 years, not have the presence of the Spirit of God. That alone is terrifying. The Holy Spirit in me, in you, in the church. But here's one more strange Older Testament picture. You've got Enoch who was caught up. You've got Elijah who was also caught up, and, and he perhaps could be a picture of the rapture as well, although he got a fiery chariot. I don't think that's very fair, but that's okay. It's all right. Second portrait, Lot. Lot, one of the stranger Older Testament pictures of the rapture, and to prove it to you, I'm going to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2 and listen to Peter's commentary on Lot. Lot, in Genesis 19, was pulled out of Sodom, I mean, forcefully pulled out of Sodom. By the way, while you're turning there, raptus, harpazo, means to be forcefully taken. So when we go, we're going fast, and we're going to feel it, boom, up we go. This forceful, and the angels grab hold of Lot and his daughters and his wife, and they pull him out of the city because they were hesitating. Boy, that's grace right there. Grace pulls me out when I'm hesitating. So they pull him out, and, and outside of the city, there's, there's Lot, and the angels tell him, you gotta get out of here. You gotta go. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse four, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, the preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, look at verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. But note that verse nine again. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Now, in this passage, you might say, well, what about Noah, though? Wouldn't Noah be kind of a picture of being rescued? No, Noah Noah wasn't kept from the flood. He was preserved through the flood. Noah is a picture of Israel because he was saved, but he was saved on the waves of the flood. A picture of Israel preserved and carried through the tribulation. Someone might say, that's anti-Semitic. You're saying the Jews are gonna go into the tribulation? Not if they believe in Jesus. Tribulation is only for those who have rejected or do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. And yes, the nation of Israel, as the Bible tells us, and we'll deal with this next week, the nation of Israel very clearly will be present on earth in that tribulation period. But note this. He says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. It's amazing that Lot was godly. Where he lived? Stunning. But one godly man was found in Sodom, and the Lord pulled him out. The Lord rescued him, and note this, he rescued him from temptation. That same word, temptation, parasmos, in the Greek is the word Jesus used in Revelation chapter three, verse 10. Note this, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, parasmos, that hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test parasmos, those who dwell on the earth. I'm gonna keep you from it. Just like the Lord knows how to keep the godly from it. will be pulled out from it. It's temptation, it's trial, it's testing, and it's global, Jesus said in Revelation 3. And Lot is a picture of that having been pulled out from that massive Destruction. By the way, Genesis 19, 17, when Lot was pulled out, what the angel specifically said was, escape for your life. Number five, in your rapture notes, the great escape. The great escape, the rapture is absolutely an escape. Jesus said in Luke 21, 36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse nine, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, dead in Christ or alive in Christ, we will live together with him. That's God's plan. That's the rapture of the church. It's the great escape. Words of comfort and encouragement Now, if you want discomfort, if you need an alarm call to wake you up, just read Revelation 6 through 18. It's the longest continuous section in the Bible dealing with the tribulation, and what's marvelous about it is you will not find the church there. Number six in your notes, the missing people. The missing people. Quickly, let me take you through this. Big government and big tech would love to get rid of Christians. We'll take care of that. We'll be gone. And by the way, not by aliens. Just want to get that out there. Perhaps if someone ever listens to this particular teaching during the tribulation period, it wasn't alien invasion. It was Jesus Christ. But looking at Revelation, the whole book, let's do the whole book. Ready? Ready? Jesus, at the beginning of it, tells John something very specific. Jesus reveals himself to John, and it's stunning, Revelation chapter 1. And he tells John, write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. You Bible students remember this. In Revelation chapter 1, John had seen the revelation of Jesus Christ, so he wrote about it. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, John wrote about the things which are, which at that time and even up to present day, is the church. Which is why we see in Revelation 1 through Revelation 3, the church is named 23 times. The church, the church, the church, the church. We're all over the place in Revelation 1 through 3. Everywhere. You just keep seeing again and again the word for church, the ecclesia. We're right there. And then, Jesus told John, but but then I want you to write something else. I want you to write the things which will take place after these things. Now right there, there's an implication, church, 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 and I want you to write something that's gonna happen after the church, after these things. Ah, I think you're reading into it, Rick. Okay, Revelation chapter four, verse one, begins with that same phrase, after these things, metatauta in the Greek. After these things, John said, I looked and behold, a door opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, sound familiar? Speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, sound familiar? I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne and John is instantly translated, raptured, caught up. He's now in heaven. I believe we have right there a New Testament picture of the church in the person of John. But if you look at Revelation chapter five, verses nine and 10, it says of those who are in heaven at this time, they sang a new song, saying worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you made them, literally you made us, they sing to be a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth Who sings that? The church sings that. So suddenly, Revelation one through three, 23 times we hear church mentioned. Revelation four and five, John is in heaven and there are people singing in heaven who sound an awful lot like the church. And suddenly, the church goes missing. Not mentioned a single time, not even referenced, not even alluded to in Revelation six all the way through Revelation 18. Seven times in Revelation chapters two and three, seven times Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the middle of the tribulation description, Revelation 13, verse nine, listen to what is said. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. It's not he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? The church isn't there. The church is not present in fact, the first time that we hear the word church again is Revelation 22:16, 16. And again, these are all jotted down and they're on YouTube so you can go back. If you missed one, you can write them down and double check these things. The first time we hear the word church is 22:16. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches so that we would know. But for me, The singular most compelling teaching on the rapture of the church comes from Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and we'll call this the personal reception. The personal reception. Matthew 24, verse 37. I'll give you a second to get there. Rick, you know we have a second service. Oh, I know, I'm aware. Matthew 24, verse 37. Where Jesus is teaching. It's so compelling for me. And and you know what? The whole word is the word of God. You understand that, right? The Bible is the word of God. So whether it's in red letters or black letters, it's still the word of God. But personally, for me, to, to hear Jesus talk about it, which we already have a couple of times, by the way, but to hear Jesus describe it was what, pushed me over the edge to start believing in and accepting the literal teaching of the catching up of the church. Verse 37, Jesus said, the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. Wait a minute, I gotta remind you. You remember what happens in Matthew 24? Chapter, or verse one through verse 31 is chronological, which we talked about last week. You can walk it through. It goes all the way from, from the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus teaches all the way to the glorious appearing, which he discusses in verses 29, 30, 31. And then he changes direction. Then he starts to talk about readiness. The last half of Matthew 24 is all about being ready. It's not part of the chronological picture because he unfolds a mystery that they didn't fully comprehend yet. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Who's Noah a picture of? Israel. Israel. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, Noah was preserved, right? All the rest were taken away. And then he says, verse 40, Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And if you read this in the English, you go, well, they were all taken in the days of Noah. And then one will be taken and one will be left. So taken must be to judgment, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? If they were taken out during the days of Noah, Noah was preserved. Everyone else was wiped out, killed, taken. And then one's gonna be taken, one will be left. I don't wanna be taken. I wanna be left. No, you don't. If we're reading it in English, we can make that assumption. If you read it in the Greek, it says a completely different thing. In the days of Noah, they were, the, the, the flood came and took them away. The word is airo in the Greek. Eiro, which means to take away from life or to cease to exist. But that's not the word he uses in verses 40 and 41 when he says, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. The word taken there, completely different word, paralambano, I've shared with you before. It means to receive unto. One will be received unto and one will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be received unto, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be received unto, one will be left. Jesus uses the exact same word, John 14, three, if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Paralambano, that where I am, there you may be also. And suddenly this mystery of the rapture pops open in the words of Jesus, I'm gonna receive you to myself. You need to be ready. You don't know the day or the hour. Oh, you can follow the chronology of Matthew 1 through 31, but you don't know the day or the hour and something's gonna happen that is unexpected, something that will be taught about by Paul and others later on, but it's gonna take place. You're gonna get caught up. You're gonna be pulled out. What a homecoming. You're gonna be received unto me, Jesus says. And I was reminded just this morning, that's the whole point. That's why we're doing what we're doing, to be received unto Jesus, to draw near to God. Isn't that our heart's desire? And that is what happens at the rapture of the church. We are going to be received to Jesus himself in the clouds, in the air, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. And by the way, there's a huge difference between the calling out, the catching up, the rapture of the church, and the glorious appearing of Jesus when he sets foot on the earth. The two couldn't be more different. And you can look it up in the verse. In fact, I have these sheets I've I've passed out to you before. They're right here in the front and there are some in the back too, so grab one that gives clear biblical distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus. Two phases of the second coming. But first the church goes and we're with him and then he returns. And you need to study that out if you're unsure about that. It's very clear, one is atmospheric and the other one is terra firma. And that's just one distinction. Titus 2.13, Paul said we are to be looking for the blessed hope, that's the rapture. How do you know, I'll tell you. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, that's the second coming. The blessed hope. And the appearing. The rapture is the blessed hope. It is that definite departure. It is our great comfort at the last trumpet by ancient promises and portraits. It's the great escape, the missing people to a personal reception with Jesus Christ. And it ain't just any reception. Number eight, we're almost there. Number eight, the wedding reception. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It doesn't say it was given to her bandages and salve because she's beaten up. But fine linen, bright and clean. Righteousness given to her. A wedding feast, the The marriage of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' day in Israel, the groom and the bride were betrothed. The groom began immediately working in most cases, adding on an apartment to his father's house. And when all was ready, the father would tell his son, looks good, go get your bride. The bride had to be ready. She didn't know the day or the hour. And the groom would go out and he would, get her, his bride, bring him back with him. Jesus said, John 14, two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And he went and got her and brought her to the place prepared. They had the, the marriage, the marriage feast, the joy, and then the newlyweds sequestered in the place prepared for seven days. Hebrew tradition, the Jewish wedding. Note this, in Revelation 19, unquestionably, the church is in heaven. How did she get there? There's only one way. Only one way. She has to be caught up by Jesus. Jesus comes and gets her and brings her to the marriage feast only one way. Jesus said, "I am the resurrection and the life," John 11:25. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, the dead in Christ. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, we who are alive at the time of the rapture. And then Jesus says this very simple question to you and to me this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe that he's the resurrection and the life? If you do, Whether dead or alive, when he calls, come up here, you will go up there. Only one way to be at the marriage feast of the Lamb, to be the bride. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. (sighs) Throughout the New Testament, And actually, all the way into about the fourth century, there was a certain teaching that dominated the church. We have evidence of this. We have proof of this from people like Jerome in the 380s. He taught about a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. His translation of the Latin Vulgate, (laughs) the Latin raptus is where we got the word rapture in the first place. Cyprian in the 250s talked about preached about the rapture of the church. Irenaeus, I love Irenaeus. I got to I got to meet this guy. Irenaeus in the 180s was talking about the rapture of the church. This is not a recent concept, my friends. And as a matter of fact, Peter talked about it. John talked about it. Paul talked about it, and of course, Jesus talked about it, and that teaching is what I would call number 9, last one in your notes, the doctrine of imminence the doctrine of imminence and it's so important we're going to end with this because this is how every believer is called to live with the doctrine of imminence there is no doctrine of putting off as long as possible there is no doctrine of maybe tomorrow there is no doctrine of well we'll find out when we find out it is the doctrine of imminence. And listen to it again, First Thessalonians 4, 13. I'll read it one more time. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And listen, Paul says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Did you hear it? Five times, Paul says, we called the We Statements of Paul. I don't know if he wrote it in the wee hours of the morning, but it's the We Statements of Paul. 2,000 years ago, Paul lived every single day with the absolute assurance of the imminent expectation of being raptured himself. He even said it. We who are alive and remain will be caught up with those who died. They'll be caught up first, and then we who are alive. He lived with the expectation until he sat on death row what what was the day like when the lord revealed to paul oh paul you're going to be caught up but you're going to be among those who are caught up first the dead in christ what was that like for paul to realize he was going to die you know what he said 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing Paul lived his life loving his appearing lived his life by the imminency by the doctrine of imminence, that not imminence as in, oh, he's an imminent one, imminence as it could happen any second, any moment. He lived loving his appearing. He lived with the expectation that that day could be the last day. He expected to be alive at the time of the rapture of the church. And so should you. And so should I. This is how we live. That's why I'm spending all this time on the rapture this morning. Do you live loving his appearing? That is expecting, waiting on, assuming it could be any moment. Do you live that way? And someone might say, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm ready. I, I don't, how can I be sure? What if I haven't done enough? And John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. By the way, that's how it changes you. You see him as he is. If I see myself as I am, I'm in big trouble. So I see him as he is and that changes me and makes me like him. And he says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul calls that the blessed hope, the hope of Jesus' imminent return. Peter calls it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three, our living hope, the resurrection from the dead. We live with this hope. And Jesus simply calls you and calls me to be those who love his appearing, to be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Father, Jesus, spirit who indwells everyone who trusts and believes in you by faith, I cannot wait to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and to forever be with you, Lord Jesus. I so long for this. I so expect this. And I pray, Father, that you would grab hold of my ADD mind and fix my eyes on the hope that is before me in Jesus. I pray for our fellowship, that we will not be disturbed as if by anything going on around us or distracted from the word of the truth, but we would cling to the coming of Jesus, those who are in love with the idea because we are in love with the person. Lord Jesus, fill us with your word of comfort this morning and hope and perseverance, knowing that day is nearly upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.